Hello, and welcome to The Kicker. Uh, I am not Kyle Pope, uh, but I am John Alsop, and I'm in for Kyle today. And I'm in Glasgow, where I've been attending the United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP26. I've been here all week reporting stories about the media and its coverage of the climate story and the conference in CJR's daily newsletter, The Media Today, which I write. COP, uh, for those of you who don't know, stands for Conference of the Parties, which basically just means countries that signed on to a United Nations climate framework in the early 90s. And it's an annual event. Countries come together from all over the world, along with people from civil society and activists, to hash out, at least in theory, how we're going to survive as a species. This is a really important COP, particularly so. The stakes are really high as negotiators have been discussing how to better implement the Paris Agreement that was made back in 2015. And we're going to be talking a little bit today about the media's approach to those stakes and to the climate story more broadly. I'll be joined uh, on today's show by two guests. Disha Shetty, a journalist from India who's been here on a reporting fellowship organized by the Earth Journalism Network and the Stanley Center. They've paid to bring 20 journalists from developing countries uh, here to Glasgow to cover the conference in person. And Mark Hertzgaard, the director of Covering Climate Now, which is a climate reporting project led by CJR and The Nation. And we spoke on Thursday, about a day and a couple of hours before the conference was supposed to conclude, with the expectation still among lots of people here. We're probably not done quite yet. So, uh, Disha, let's start with you. Welcome to The Kicker. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You're very welcome. So I guess to start with, just tell us a bit about yourself. What's your day job? Um, What do you do? And how did you end up here at COP? So I'm an independent science journalist. I'm based in Pune in India. It's about three hours from Mumbai. Um, And I report on climate change, public health, the intersection of these two subjects, and occasionally on gender issues in India. Um, And um, I contribute to several Indian and international publications. So at COP, I'm mainly writing for Health Policy Watch, which is a Geneva-based news organization. But I'm also contributing to some other publications. Mm-hmm. And is this your first time covering a COP? I have covered the UN General Assembly on a UN fellowship in 2019. Uh, but this this would be my first COP. Yeah. And how are you finding it? Because it's my first COP too. And obviously, I'm just covering media stuff. So it's a little less intense for me, I think. But it's like totally overwhelming still. Um, it's been a huge advantage to be on this fellowship because we have a cohort of journalists also reporting on the same timeline, the idea for me was to focus on the intersection of climate change and public health, which is what I've been doing. Ah, uh-huh. So what sorts of stories have you been writing? What does that look like? What sort of topics have you uh, been exploring here? Right. So one of the things I also did at the COP was I was uh, moderating a panel discussion um, on uh, climate change, clean air and public health. Um, and uh, a, a story that I'm currently working on that should be out um, in the DevEx um, either in a day or two. Um, I'm looking at why we don't talk about the disproportionate impact of air pollution on women. 
um, uh, I come from India and India has some of the world's most toxic air. Uh, we know that air pollution um, is linked to public health and has an impact on public health. And we know that women are disproportionately affected because uh, their maternal health is affected and uh, uh, women are exposed to much more indoor air pollution. Uh, MSF is at, at the COP for the first time, Doctors Without Borders. And it was interesting for me to talk to them about what they're seeing out there in the world uh, and how a lot of their uh, work is intersecting with, because they, they primarily work in emergency situations and a lot of uh, uh, climate events are emergency situations. So they're dealing with more and more public health fallouts of climate change. So obviously we're, we're in a moment now where the two, I think the two biggest stories in the world are climate change and, and public health with the, the pandemic. And yet it seems to me that the links between those stories aren't always drawn as clearly as they could or should be. How do you sort of more generally see the intersection of public health and climate reporting? Do you think it's hard for news organizations to focus on those two at the same time? Like, how do you how do you see that? We aren't having as much conversation about public health as we ought to have Uh, this year. Uh, from what given that this is my first cop i'm being told that the conversations that we are having about public health is uh, uh already uh this is the highest that we've had uh, or the largest amount but it seems to me that uh, this would probably be like 2% of the overall conversation would be on public health i have been covering climate change in india and i've traveled across the country reporting on how climate change affects communities and public health is always uh, a part of the fallouts, um, whether it's uh, access to water becoming scarce, so women having to walk longer to fill water, and then what the, what that does to their bodies, um, uh, starting from something as basic as that to going to as complicated as air pollution, where many of the pollutants that cause air pollution also uh, are the same, also have greenhouse um effect and push up global uh, temperature rise um, and uh, in my country air pollution and in much of the Indo-Gangetic plain in South Asia air pollution is a huge issue uh, which translates to uh, worsening health outcomes for um, all age groups including children elderly women but anyone who's really exposed to air pollution so um it is a public health crisis. Climate change is a public health crisis, but climate change has so far um, not been reported as a public health crisis. Now, the second part that I wanted to talk about is why that happens. And I think that's because in journalism organizations, your beats are in silos. So either you're a public health reporter or you're an environment reporter. Um, since I work as an independent journalist and because I have reported on public health in the past, when I started reporting on environment, to me, these impacts uh, just stood out and they were very obvious impacts. Um, and it was easy for me to report on them. But I think the way our structures work, they make it harder for us to see these overlaps because you're expected to either do just an environment story or just a a public health story in your newsrooms. Uh, the health sector obviously knows this, but I think even within the health sector, uh, they're just a beginning to learn more about climate change and understand these intersections. So there is some movement because healthcare without harm 
an organization that works in this area is is has done some work looking at how health sector itself contributes to climate change but also in what ways healthcare professionals can step up in the climate crisis so um we're at a very uh, nascent stage i think at uh in in terms of both uh writing more about this intersection and discussing more about this intersection i think evidence and science of, about this intersection that part is clear we already have enough evidence and we know in what ways these intersections work but our response has been very slow so you're as i said one of 20 journalists on this fellowship uh the others come from countries in africa other countries in asia south america i think there's someone from eastern europe here too um and I was going to ask, what do you think the importance is of having journalists from those parts of the world, many of which are extremely immediately affected by the climate crisis? Why is it important to be able to come here in person to cover an event like this? Well, I'm going to say that when I first uh, thought about it, I always asked myself, what is it that I would bring to the table um, when I'm traveling? And and the whole idea of traveling in a flight to a climate conference itself is so ironical. So one has to ask oneself, what are you adding to uh, the mix? Earth Journalism Network um, had a collaboration with the Scotsman and all of us contributed uh, pieces from our respective regions to the newspaper. And uh, I then realized that in places like Glasgow, the climate is relatively stable. And so a lot of impacts that we are talking about that we take for granted, we as in people in the developing world, because we're living with this, we're coping with extreme weather events on a regular basis in India, air pollution obviously is a huge problem, but so so are heat waves. Uh, We have areas in Sundarbans, which is in the eastern part of India, where islands are going underwater. We, We have Himalayan glaciers in the northern part of India melting. So for us, climate change is now a very active conversation in the national media. But I've realized that it might not be so in a lot of these places, which aren't where people aren't experiencing the impact of climate change firsthand. So I now understand that I think we bring lived experience with us but also just interactions uh, with other journalists from the global north, with editors from the global north, and just being able to be at events where leaders from the global north are talking and to be able to ask them questions um, about climate change, I think is uh, hugely important because I see a very clear distinction between my perspective and the perspective of uh, all the journalists in, in my cohort uh, when compared to journalists who are mainly living and reporting from the global north who don't necessarily have a lived experience of these extreme weather events. Yeah, <laughs> and so I should say the other night we were um, having a, a debate actually um, about the terms developing country and global south. Um, and yeah, I think like, you know, so much media discourse around those parts of the, you know, the countries that you would consider to be covered by those terms gets flattened by the terms themselves. Um, and as I said, we were sort of debating this. And I guess I kind of came down thinking that like there wasn't really a good option. But like, how do you how do you sort of see that? I've heard the two terms being used. One is developing countries and the other one being global south. 
um and to me developing countries sounded uh, reasonable and fair uh, and i'd read about some criticism a lot of uh, researchers have about being called as being from the global south uh, as it being derogatory uh but then i also heard uh, some counter perspective from some of the journalists where they saw the term global south as being a term uh that uh helps them have a sense of solidarity with other countries in in the same situation um so personally i i prefer developing countries uh but i also interchangeably use it with global south given that in in the global north so to speak uh, where we are um uh, this term is widely used developing countries what is is more on the terms of economics and gdp and i think i would that i would prefer that i had a very testy time with an editor where i was they wanted journalists from the global south but uh, they rewrote the entire piece from a global north perspective so i ha- i'm now realizing that not just like being here in at cop is not enough there seem to be a lot of pushback in even getting our perspective and our voice and and um across and it's being seen more as editorializing rather than reporting even though you might like factually report something but for instance just like the terms climate finance is i mean there's so much negotiation happening about loss and damage in climate finance within cop um in my experience when i'm writing for international publications not in not in the global south i actually have trouble even reporting what i think are facts and the other person thinks are not facts disha thank you so much for coming on the kicker we'll be back Delighted to be joined now by Mark Hertzgar, the uh, director of Covering Climate Now, which is a reporting initiative led by CJR and The Nation. He also writes for The Nation magazine and has been doing that here in Glasgow this week. He's also wearing a Nation uh, button on his lapel as uh, I sit here talking to him. Um, Mark, welcome back. I think to the kicker. Very good to be here, John. So you. Rose a piece for covering climate now slash CJR last week uh, during the first week um, of negotiations here at COP, in which you basically said that in all of your years covering these events, you had not seen this much attention paid by U.S. news organizations to what was going on. These, you know, the amount of resources that U.S. news organizations were pouring into the story seemed unprecedented to you for one of these conferences. Um, but you also said that the sort of devil in the detail stuff tends to come in the second week of cop um we're talking on thursday so getting towards the end of that second week what's your view now most of the serious uh us news organizations by which i mean the washington post new york times etc time magazine is here um they have kept their teams here through the entire uh two weeks uh the tv networks not so much they were here at the start and they may come back at the end we'll see uh, and i think the reason that uh, the tv networks the us networks showed up at the start of the summit is quite obvious is because president biden was here and i don't know if that's been um i'm not sure why they did this but this it, people should understand that 
generally at these uh, climate conferences, the heads of state don't show up until the end, not at the beginning. And so it was quite a reverse this time, and it was partly, partly just geography. The, uh, the group of 20 nations, the 20 richest economies on earth, they had their uh, annual summit in Rome literally the day before COP26 began. Mm -hmm. So it was very simple, two-hour plane ride to get from Rome to Glasgow and appear here. And that did lead to a, a number of you know, high, high visibility announcements early on about from Biden and other leaders. Um, and, but but what, we're, what we're really realizing now in the second week is that you know, those announcements, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily mean anything to what happens at these uh, negotiations because these negotiations are, just to be clear, they are about uh, not so much a new agreement as figuring out how does the world implement the Paris Agreement that was reached six years ago. So that's what the haggling is here today and, and this week is about what are the rules, how do we reach this goal of 1.5 degrees that was set out in Paris? That's what is being talked about now. Yeah. So Salim Al-Haq, a Bangladeshi climate expert who is a, a longtime source of yours, I believe, um, wrote a column, a newspaper column before the conference in which he spoke about some fallacies that he could see in the reporting already at that point. One, I think, to the point that you just made was that there's going to be a kind of unified quote-unquote Glasgow agreement. Actually, this is about implementing the Paris Agreement better. And so, yeah, I think as you were just saying, um, it, it's not sort of um, one grand new thing. It's a bit more complicated than that. Um, he also said that the media had been tricked into describing this as a leaders' summit, when actually, as you just said it as well, the, the leaders' presence isn't really super germane to the negotiations that are going on this week, particularly given that they came at the beginning. Um, and he kind of said, you know, that this doesn't really merit coverage. It's just a shiny object. Um, I think he said Boris Johnson, you know, the former newspaper columnist, um, played the media by having all these famous celebrity leaders come in. Um, and he thinks it was, I think, basically a total distraction. I can also see the case, though, that given what we know about what attracts media attention, that does. And attention is better than no attention. So how do you sort of come down on, on that? Yeah, I have to say, I, I disagree with Salim that, um, that the leaders showing up here doesn't matter. It always matters when heads of state and heads of government show up someplace. It's a way for them to say that, that we care about this issue, but equally the obverse. It's a way for the world to say, okay, we're going to hold you to what you said there, Biden and Johnson and the others. And I do think it's also significant that Presidents uh, Putin of Russia and President Xi of China did not show up. That also is a kind of a swipe at the, at the uh, rest of the world. And in particular, I think um, to the young climate activists and the other protesters who are here, uh, and that's been a real shift from previous COPs as well, is that there's now the sense uh, over the last two years that the the, uh, the climate, if you pardon the pun, the climate outside of these negotiations, out in the society has really changed. Now, all of these leaders, and they say it in their speeches, they know that the world is watching. They know that young people in particular are angry at them. Barack Obama came here the other day and said he told young people, I want you to stay angry. You have a right to be angry. I want you to channel that anger into to keep pushing us to go farther, faster. So I think that, you know, look, politics is not just what gets written down in legislation. Politics is atmospherics 
and what happens out in the society. So to that extent, I think it was valuable, frankly, for the leaders to show up. That said, that doesn't mean that we in the press should have treated what those leaders said as policy, especially because most of what they said were pledges, promises, commitments, not actions. This is how much we're going to spend. That sort of concrete kind of, of detail that you really need to turn good intentions into reality. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point about protesters, I think that's been a big story here. I spent some time uh, on Wednesday hanging out with some um, Extinction Rebellion protesters. Got some very interesting, very interesting things to say about the media. You can read those at cjr.org. That's a, a shameless uh, plug for my <laughs> article there. Um, I was going to ask, Mark, so you, you've covered so many of these events down the years. This one, obviously, as well as being very important just in the climate scheme of things, is taking place during a, a pandemic, which has led to a certain level of weirdness. There have been accusations, I think, from, uh, well, like, yeah, accusations from a lot of civil society groups that this has been a very exclusionary event because um, reason, not just COVID, but also, um, you know, visa issues and um, just the sheer cost of accommodation here have, have sort of stopped people coming, in many cases, from the countries that are really directly most on the front lines of, of the climate crisis. I, I also wrote this week about how that dynamic appears to extend to the news organizations that are here. So with all of that in mind, how does this COP compare to previous COPs just to, to be here as a journalist and, and, and to cover it? Well, you're certainly right that, that uh, it's been shameful, really, uh, and, and a shame that we have not had those voices here both because of COVID and because of the amounts of money that it takes. You know, you mentioned Salim al-Haq. He had to self-quarantine for two weeks because he's from Bangladesh on the red list of countries with COVID. He had to self-quarantine for two weeks, pay for a hotel room in the center of London at his own expense. And he's able to afford it, but most of these activists are not. And that's a real loss for uh, the summit, but also for the uh, overall conversation. Uh, because, look, we would not be where we are today on this if uh, civil society were not pushing these governments to do more and, and pushing companies to do more. And, uh, you know, the press is part of civil society. We're sitting here in the press center right now, and we've been here for days. And uh, you look across these long rows of tables. It's like a, as big as a football field upstairs, downstairs. There's a lot of reporters here, uh, hundreds, I would say and almost all of them are white. There's a few from Africa, there's some from Asia, um, but it is overwhelmingly uh, a press corps of white people and generally white people from uh, the wealthy countries. And don't get me wrong, I'm very, very happy that they're here. That's been a lot of the work of covering climate now in these last two years, is to get the mainstream media from these countries to finally stop the climate silence and, and treat this as the, as the biggest story of our time. So I'm not putting that down. But it is even more important that our colleagues from the Global South in newsrooms in Africa, in Asia, uh, in South America, that they be here because they are reporting to the communities who are on the front lines of climate change, who are living with the climate crisis and the climate emergency, who are seeing their houses blown away by floods, seeing their crops wither from these terrible droughts. And they need this information. They need to know what's going on here. And sadly, our colleagues, our journalistic colleagues from the Global South are largely not here. Yeah. 
that's a really important point. Um, but again, in terms of your experience covering these events, how has this one been different for you in terms of the work you've been doing? Or has it, has it not really? Actually, for me, this COP26 has not been terribly different from covering my experience covering uh, the Paris Agreement COP uh, five, six years ago. I was in Copenhagen before that. I was at, at Rio de Janeiro in 1992, the summit that put in motion all of these kinds of, of conferences. Um, you know, it's a lot of late nights, but um, and you're running around all the time to figure out what the difference is between what a government says it's going to do and what it's actually doing. Um, but uh, frankly, I have felt just absolutely blessed. I always feel absolutely blessed to be a reporter, to have the privilege to bring this information to the rest of the world. And, you know, those of you who are listening, if it sounds like somebody's tap dancing on the ceiling above us, that's simply because this is real life, folks. We're in the press room and people are walking by. I thought it was the Washington Post's tap dance correspondent. Oh, well, maybe, maybe I haven't missed that yet. You may be right, John. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and as you said, you know, these these sort of reporting rhythms that you're describing, obviously very hard, if not impossible, to cover these remotely. And, and yet that clearly is what so many journalists from the global south have been forced to do. I want to finish up here by... Well, with a caveat, first of all, which is that it's Thursday afternoon when we're recording this. But I think when this podcast comes out, there may or may not be some kind of file, uh, final quote unquote agreement deal, whatever you want to call it. Um, obviously, it's too soon to know exactly what that's going to look like. So we won't try and speculate here. But I think there will be a temptation in the media coverage of whatever is um, concluded here to describe it as a success or a failure in blanket terms. Clearly, those are very oversimplified conclusions. How do you think the press should go about covering whatever ends up coming out of, of this COP? Well, sadly, John, you're right. You're already seeing that success failure, uh, you know, juxtaposition in a lot of the coverage already, even before we started. And there was just a Washington Post piece today about that. So, um, I would urge my colleagues to be a little more nuanced and to realize this is a marathon, not a sprint. And whatever comes out of this COP, these conferences are held every year. And in fact, that's going to be one of the main questions in, in the final text is, uh, does that final text say that now governments around the world have to update their uh, emissions reductions plans every year? Under the Paris Agreement, it's every five years. And if we stick with that, we're kind of screwed, frankly. Because basically, the science says we've got to cut the emissions by 45% over the next nine years by 2030 compared to 2010 uh, levels. And if we wait until 2025 for the next so-called stock taking of emissions, we won't get there. So that's going to be a very, very important uh, uh, benchmark as to how close we get to success. And um, I think in general, we should, uh, in the media, we should not be predicting. We, we're not uh, scorekeepers either. We're supposed to be analyzing and reporting what's going on and giving the public the information they need to understand how they can be involved in this, which is arguably the most important question of our time. Indeed. Um, Mark Hertzgaard, thank you for coming on The Kicker. Always a pleasure. That wraps up our show uh, for this week. Kyle will be back when the kicker returns. I've been John Alsop from COP26 here in Glasgow. You can find all of my coverage of that and all of CJR's coverage of everything media-related at cjr.org. 
Um, or again, a shameless plug, you can subscribe to the newsletter that I write with Matthew Ingram, uh, the media today, also via our homepage. Thank you for listening. See you next time.